You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Good morning, Cities Church. Excited to be here with you. It is the <clears throat> come to the end of this sermon series, and I have absolutely loved it. This is the 14th sermon in this series. It's, it's amazing to think we could preach 13 sermons in, in such a short book. Uh, But this book has just been jam-packed with doctrines and encouragements and exhortations and wisdom. Um, And it has just been so rich and such a joy. I want to just briefly recap some of the the things that have stuck out to me over these last 13 sermons. We learned from the Apostle Peter that we are elect, chosen by God in accordance with his foreknowledge. And it is God who has caused us to be born again to this living hope. We have a living hope, and it's because God calls us to be born again. As Pastor Jonathan said a few weeks ago, we had as much to do with our spiritual rebirth as we did our physical birth. This is all God's doing. We are exiles exiles in this land. We are refugees, but we have a new identity. We are citizens of heaven. Peter tells us that we are loved, chosen, Precious. These are the words and the adjectives he uses to describe us as believers. We are precious to God. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. We also learn from Peter that we are guaranteed to be sustained amid our suffering by the grace of God. God will give us his grace and we will be able to be sustained in our sufferings. And we are guaranteed to have our suffering be a refinement for us. Our suffering never goes to waste. God uses it to refine us. And as Pastor Ryan said a few weeks ago, in the midst of our suffering, we get to be the people that mediate God's blessings to the world. We have the privilege of being the instruments that God uses to proclaim his excellencies to the world. What an incredible privilege that is. Peter calls us living stones of this new spiritual house that God is building. God is building a new temple, not with physical rock and stone, but with living stones. You and I, we are the living stones of this temple. And we know that there is a future grace that is to be revealed and we are exhorted to look forward to it. We know there is a grace that will be revealed in the future when Christ returns. These are just a few of the lessons we learned from the first few chapters of this letter. And then last week, Pastor Joe examined the first few verses of chapter five. And this is where Peter gives an exhortation to the elders. He says, shepherd the flock among you. Shepherd the flock of God. He's exhorting the elders to do this. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more this morning. We'll we'll come back to that. And now we've come to the last few verses of First Peter, we are actually not going to cover the last, the absolute last few verses after verse 12, not because they're not important. They are very important. Uh, we just didn't have enough time to cover all of those. And so I'd encourage you to go back at some point in your own personal devotion time, examine those. But this morning, we'll start in verse 6, First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. If you have your Bibles, you can read with me. Follow along with me. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
when we face anxieties in this life, when we face troubles, sufferings, difficulties, we run to God and we cast them upon him. And then Peter tells us why. Because he cares for us. This is a remarkable thought to me. Just every time I consider this, that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, cares about you. He cares about me. I'm like, I mean, there's billions of people on the planet and there's so many things to worry about. Surely I'm not that important. Surely City's Church, we, we can't be that high on his to-do list, right? Wrong. He cares for you, City's Church. Just a couple of verses. Psalm 55 says, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Psalm 56 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. Psalm 56 tells us that. Psalm 34 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ear is inclined to you. He is ready to listen to you because he cares for you. Some of these verses mean, um, they mean something new to me, or I, or I feel like I'm understanding them better over the last few weeks. Um, this is the first time I'm preaching here on Sunday morning post the birth of my daughter, Letty Grace. And uh, people say this all the time, and it's, it feels trite sometimes. Oh, when you hold that child, you're gonna it's going to be totally different. Your world's going to change. You're going to understand the love of God more. People say these things. You're like, okay, okay, oh, whatever. Okay, I get it. Like, all right, you're, you got nine kids. I got it. Okay, whatever. Like, it's so easy for that to be trite. It's 100% accurate, though. <laughs> and the first time I held this child, it, it, my, my whole world changed. I can't even articulate it. And I read this verse, and I feel this way. Man, I'm in the other room, and I hear just a slight cry. I'm like, ah, she's, what's going on? In the middle of the night, I wake up. On the first night we brought her home, I woke up at least three times to make sure she was still breathing. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one, right? You just, there's just, I'm inclined to what, what does she need? What's going on? What's happening? My eyes are on her. My ear is inclined to her. And I've just been sensing the Holy Spirit tell me, this is God, your father, your father in heaven. His eyes are on you. His ear is, is, is inclined to you. He is listening to you because he cares for you. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, excuse me, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known, be made known to God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. Pastor Jonathan preached about this during our Rooted series several, uh, several months ago. Jesus says in Matthew 6, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. Or what you will put on is not life more than food, the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in, into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? The birds of the air, God makes sure that they are fed. He takes care of them. You're way more valuable than a bird. Why would we think? That he is concerned to ensure that, that the birds are fed, but that his children that he loves, that he died for, are not fed and taken care of. In fact, Pastor Jonathan exhorted us that every time we hear birds chirping, that should remind us that God cares for us. 
City's Church, I want to say this morning to you, God cares for you. He cares. Look at verse 8 with me. In response to knowing that God cares, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. This is not the first time that Peter uses this language. We've seen this language before. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Right, similar language here. And Pastor Joe told us a few weeks ago that this phrase literally means to gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared for action. We see this language again in, in chapter 4, verse 7. It says this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The idea of being sober-minded is obviously very important to the Apostle Peter. This term literally refers to, alludes to drunkenness. It's being sober is the opposite of being drunk. Being sober, you could say, is the anti-drunkenness. Peter is, is saying, listen, your mind must never be drunk. Now, he's not only alluding to alcohol. For some, that may be the issue. But it's more than just alcohol. It's more than just the excessive use of alcohol. He is basically saying here, your mind must be sober. You must make sure that your mind is never in a position where, where your judgment is now being impeded. Being sober-minded means to make sure I never put myself in a situation where I am more likely to make a bad decision or in a, in, uh, an irrational decision or a sinful decision. Peter says, be sober-minded. He's telling us, make sure that your mind is alert and watchful for what's happening and make sure you never put yourself in a situation where you are more likely to make a decision that dishonors the God you love. Now, how to do this varies from person to person. As I said, for some, it is alcohol. For some people, consuming alcohol is a very bad idea, and you should abstain altogether. For some others, that's not the case. For some others, alcohol, consuming alcohol, would not be the issue that causes you to, to potentially make bad decisions. And so for you, it may be something different. For others, it may be money. Some people are drunk on the love of money and the desire to acquire wealth. For others, it's comfort eating and food. For others, it's sex, relationships, dating habits. Right? For others, it's the, the drive for likes and clicks and retweets, the drive to be famous. If I'm honest, this is the one that causes me to lack sober-mindedness if I'm not careful. I, I so desperately desire that blue check mark on Twitter. It's like one of my greatest life's goals is to have a blue check mark. And it could cost me, it could cause me to make bad decisions on social media or, or how I'm interacting because I want to make myself look better to Twitter to get the blue check mark. My, my desire for that affirmation may cause my mind to, to now have bad judgment. My drunkardness and desire for affirmation from Twitter how stupid that is, right? My desire for affirmation from Twitter may cause me to lack the, uh, an alertness in how I interact with people. That's mine. That may not be you. For most of you, you're like, I would not I don't struggle with that. That's, praise, Lord, praise the Lord for that. For, for all of us, it's going to be something that we all are going to wrestle with different things. Sober-mindedness means something, but it could vary from person to person and what context you find yourself in. What Peter is telling us is this. Whatever causes you to make bad decisions, 
whatever causes you to be irrational, whatever causes you to not think clearly, get rid of it. That's what Peter is saying. Be watchful. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It is better for you to have one hand on the way to heaven than have two hands on the way to hell. It is better, it is better for you to cast your cares on him with no social media accounts. Again, this varies from person to person. So I ask you, I challenge you this morning, pause and ask yourself, what is it for me? What are the things in my life that cause me to be more likely to make sinful decisions? What are the things that cause me to lack sober-mindedness, to get lazy or apathetic? Again, it varies from person to person. And the reason you want to be asking yourself this is because there is someone seeking to use that against you. The Apostle Peter tells us, look at verse 8 with me. The Apostle Peter says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's, he's roaring around. He's, he's kind of walking around. He's stalking you. And he's going, I'm waiting for the moment where they lack sober-mindedness because that's the moment I'm going to pounce. I actually used this imagery a few weeks ago. I preached from 1 Peter chapter 2. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter tells us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then Peter goes on to tell us that the passions of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. The passions of your flesh are proactively looking for ways to destroy you. Back in that sermon, I said that when I think of this, it reminds me of a lion in the plains of Africa, stalking and sneaking up on an unsuspecting gazelle. And you see these, these videos and pictures from National Geographic where you see a gazelle or some other animal at the watering hole, just relaxing, peaceful. <laughs> Without a care in the world. All the while not realizing there is a lion getting ready to pounce and devour. And I am so concerned that so many Christians, so many believers are living like that unsuspecting gazelle, as if there is no threat. And the Apostle Peter here uses the same imagery to describe the devil himself. He's already told us that the passion of the flesh, they war against our soul. And now he says, you have an adversary. He's like a lion. He's prowling around. He's stalking you. He's waiting for the moment where you are lacking sober-mindedness, where you are not alert, because that's the moment he will pounce on you. He's looking for the moments where we are dealing with our anxieties in an unhealthy fashion and not casting them on the Father so that he can jump in and bring destruction. Side note, I think it's important to think about the fact that we have a real enemy and it's supernatural. Different types of Christians have different propensities, different types of church. Some churches, everything's the devil. It's like everything that happened, the devil did it. I'm like, oh, I've got a stomachache. It's the devil. I'm like, well, maybe it was because I ate 10 Snickers bars. I don't know, like... Like, maybe it wasn't the devil. Like, there are some churches that are like, everything's the devil. It's the devil, the devil, the devil. And I think that's really unhealthy in a lot of ways. But then there are other churches where it's like the devil never is even mentioned. 
It's as if he doesn't exist. And if we're not careful, Cities Church, I think we probably could fall into that camp. That, that would be our propensity as a, as a church. And that would be my propensity as you know, where I'm at, kind of my theology and flavor of Christianity, so to speak. We could be very, we, we could potentially find ourselves in a situation where we're not thinking about the fact that there is a real supernatural adversary looking to devour. We must be extremely careful. And it's important to remember that the enemy is supernatural. So this is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Church, other people are not your enemy. I want to make that very clear. Our enemies are supernatural forces and principalities. Satan and his goon squad. That's our, that's, that's those who, who are seeking to devour us. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your boss is not your enemy. That coworker that drives you crazy or you disagree with or you argue with and you can't get along, that coworker is not your enemy. The friend who voted for the politician that you can't stand is not your enemy. Well, you know what I'm talking about, right? I'm, I got people like, we, we got friends who are like, you're like, your friends, like, they voted for someone. You're like, I, I just can't, I can't believe a Christian would vote for that person. You can make that argument for, for either side. Listen, the politician you can't stand is not your enemy. And your friend that voted for that politician is not your enemy. So oftentimes, we put our eyes on a, on a person or a group of persons. No, no, no. There's a different enemy. The devil is your adversary. And he would love for you to get your eyes on other persons as if they are your enemy. But they are not. Church, we must take this exhortation from the Apostle Peter very seriously. Peter is using this language, but I don't think he made this up on his own. I think he is getting this from Jesus himself. When we look at Luke chapter 21, Jesus is speaking to the apostles and Peter, and Jesus says to them, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled. You never want your mind to go dull. So Jesus says, and then later in that same chapter, in verse 36, Luke 21, verse 36, Jesus says this to Peter and the apostles. He says, be alert at all times praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Jesus is giving this to Peter, and Peter is now passing this along to us. Jesus said, hey, Peter, be alert. Be praying. And Peter says the same to us. Church, be alert. Be praying. This is the attitude we must have. I'll give you a, a silly example. I often walk our dog around our neighborhood. So walk around. Well, sometimes it feels like he's walking me, but that's a different, different illustration for a different sermon, different day. So we're I'm walking around with my crazy high-energy boxer, and uh, we walk in our neighborhood, and sometimes um, we hear noises in the neighborhood, right? When you're walking, you hear cars driving, you hear birds chirping, you hear squirrels doing squirrely stuff, whatever squirrels do. Uh, you hear, you're walking by someone's house, you hear the AC unit kick on. Right? You hear someone dragging their trash cans across their driveway, whatever. You hear noises, but they're no big deal. They're, you expect those noises, so you kind of just go on. I know I do. I just walk in my dog, and I don't really pay attention to those noises. But a few days ago, we got an email from our HOA, the, the Homeowners Association, saying that there had been several coyotes spotted in our neighborhood. And then the next day, 
late in the evening, I look out our window and I see a coyote just wandering around our cul-de-sac. I yelled out to my wife, baby, there is, a, there is a coyote in our cul-de-sac right now. Ever since that time, I've walked my dog a little differently. Right? I know the coyotes are out at certain times of day, so I don't walk my, my dog during those times of day. I also, uh, the, 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 the uh, dog walks have gotten a little bit shorter. Sorry, Cooper, but we're not going to walk that far, okay? We've got to get close. We've got to stay close to home. Um, and uh, at the end, my wife, when we first got the dog, uh, on a, at the end of her leash, we have the little, you know, little thing, put the dog, the poopy bags in, and then we have a little thing of mace that my wife bought, so it's attached there. So every time, every time I walk Cooper, I walk our dog, I got the mace kind of ready to go. And as I'm walking him, I was walking him this morning, I was out there this morning early, and I'm walking, and every time I hear a noise, I'm on it. Right, I hear a twig snap, I'm like, okay, I'm like, right, I'm like, I'm like ready, right? I'm alert, I'm on, I'm on edge, I'm watchful, Okay. Because I don't trust that my dog could beat a coyote. He'd probably try to lick him to death. But that was about to be about it. Right? I know it's a silly example, but th there is a real threat that changes the way I live my life. The threat from the enemy of your soul is far greater than a coyote in my neighborhood. It should change the way you live your life. I see so many Christians making decisions and I just think to myself, you're opening the door for the devil to potentially have his way. Do you not realize this decision you're making? J.C. Ryle was a well-known British Anglican church leader in the 19th century. Josh Foster's been reading some J.C. Ryle, and he, uh, he shared this with me, so I've been so good. J.C. Ryle says it this way, that old enemy of mankind is not dead. Speaking of Satan, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, he has been going to and fro in the earth, striving for one great end, the ruin of man's soul. Never slumbering, never sleeping, he is always near, spying on all our ways. He labors night and day to cast us down to hell. So J.C. Ross is about the devil. And he says this, sometimes he leads us into superstition. Sometimes he suggests infidelity. Sometimes by one kind of tactic, other times another kind of tactics. But he is always carrying on a campaign against our souls. He tries different tactics at different times, but he's never just, he never quits. Look at the next verse with me, 1 Peter chapter verse 9, verse 9, it says this, resist him, Peter says, speaking of the devil, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is an interesting phrase that Peter uses. You're going to resist the devil, and here's how you know you can resist them, being firm in your faith and knowing the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So let's unpack that phrase for just a moment. First, he says, firm in your faith. Again, Peter is using lingo that he got from his Savior. If you look at Luke 22, in verse 31, Jesus says this. Jesus speaking to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan is saying, I want Peter. I want to sift him. I want to devour him. Jesus says this, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Not long after this moment is when Peter denies Jesus three times. P 
Peter failed big time. But Peter didn't completely relinquish his faith in Jesus. He didn't completely stop loving Jesus. Notice Jesus says, when you have turned again, not if. When you have turned again, Peter, you're going to fail. But when you turn again back, in that moment, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew he would fail, but he knew he would come back. And how does Jesus know that? He says in verse 32, Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter's faith remained and he was able to return because Jesus prayed for him. And the same is true for us. In John 17, Jesus had just prayed for the apostles. And then Jesus says this, my prayer is not for them alone. I'm not just praying for the apostles, for these, for these men that I'm going to send across the world. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus says, I'm praying for these guys right here. But I'm also praying for all the future Christians that will believe in the message that these guys preach. That's us. Jesus prayed for you. We resist the devil through firm faith, and our faith remains firm because Jesus prayed for our faith to remain firm. Jesus prays for us. So another observation from this, this text I think is interesting. It's not clear in the English, but you don't have to be a Greek expert to figure this out, but if you do a little study, you see that all of the second-person commands are all in the plural. None of them in the singular. So you read, it says, humble yourselves, plural. Then it says, so that he may exalt you, plural. If this was a Texas translation, it would say, so that he may exalt y'all. Right? So it would say if it was a Texas version of, of the Bible. Casting all your, plural, cares on him because he cares about you, plural. Right? P Peter's saying, church, God cares for you, plural. It seems to me that the expectation here from Peter is that when we are being watchful and alert for the devil, we're not doing it by ourselves. We're doing it in community. The devil is not just circling you. He's circling the entire group. He's circling the church, looking for the weakest link. Who may I devour today? This is what he's doing. And so when you're being watchful, you're not just watchful for yourself. You're watchful for those around you as well. This is why Pastor Mike just gave us an exhortation where it's important that we invite people into our life to be watchful on our behalf, to, to notice things that we may not notice, to see our blind spots, to rebuke us when needed. If I notice something in your life that I think makes you vulnerable to the devil's power and you being devoured, it's my responsibility to point it out. I'm not just alert for myself. I'm alert for you. And you ought to be alert for one another and be alert for me. We need to be alert together. This brings us back to the note I mentioned. I said I would come back to what Pastor Joe said last week. In the first few verses of chapter 5, the apostle Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock. <clears throat> we as your elders, as your pastors, we recognize there's an adversary. He's checking out our church. And it's our job as elders, it's our job as elders to see where are the areas that the devil's going to target. Who, who does he have in his crosshairs? Who does he have a bullseye on? And it's our job to step in and to help, to guide, to rebuke and confront when needed. And this is why it is important, as Peter says in verse 5, to submit yourself to the elders. 
Sometimes elders are going to come to you, and you're not going to like what they have to say. Sometimes the pastors are going to come to you, and you're not going to like the rebuke. In that moment, it would be wise for you to submit yourself, humble yourself, subject yourself to that rebuke, even if you don't like it, even if you're not sure you fully agree. It would be helpful in that moment to heed the warnings. The Apostle Peter exhorts the church elders to shepherd them, and he exhorts the church, submit to the elders, because he knows that the pastors have got your back. We watch over you. The writer of Hebrews says this in verse 13, chapter 13. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch of your souls. City's Church, I promise you, your elders, with God's help, we are looking out for you. I promise you. It is not legalistic or domineering or inappropriate for us to point out the vulnerabilities in your life. In fact, we would be disobeying the scriptures if we did not do that. And of course, we're not the only ones that do that. Right? Your community group leaders or our deacons maybe or your life group. Right? There are other people in your life that are responsible to potentially help you see your own lack of sober-mindedness in moments. These are the mechanisms we have put here in place at City's Church to help you so that you will remain firm in the faith, so that you will resist the devil. This is why we do church membership. Side note, I've had people ask me, why, why should I become a member? I've had some people here, here this morning have asked, why, do you, why should I even become a member? And to be honest, there are some flaws with that question, but I usually just ignore that and let that slide, and I just answer the question. When people say to me, what do I get when I become a member? Here's how I typically respond. I typically say something like, you get the opportunity to submit to this church. And this church will help you against the schemes of the enemy. You get the opportunity to submit these, to these elders and your community group and your life group. And that will be the mechanism, the instrument God uses to keep you strong so that you will not be devoured by the enemy. That's what you get when you become a member of City's Church. This community will safeguard you. Look again at verse 9 with me. Peter says this, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. One of the ways that we resist the devil is that we know that there are sufferings that other believers are suffering with, suffering through, and we see the grace of God at work in their life. Let me give you an example. I got permission to share this from, uh, from Pastor Josh and Erica I've had the privilege of being in a life group with Pastor Josh Foster for the last few years. And um, brother, I, it is such a joy to be in a life group with you, to be friends with you, to, to pastor with you, brother. It's such a joy, man. And um, they have four kids and a fifth on the way. That's public knowledge. I'm pretty sure I read you, right? I was, yeah, I've heard you tell me. Okay, thank you. I didn't check that one. I'm, I'm pretty sure I already knew. Okay. Uh, they have a fifth on the way. Here's what you may not know. is that in between child number four child number three and child number four, they had three miscarriages. Three miscarriages over a 15-month period. I was so heartbroken to watch them go through this. Our community group, we were heartbroken for the Fosters. And um, there are moments, God, why would you ordain for this to happen? Why? <clears throat> you know what I saw in them? I saw the grace of God at work. I saw them love each other and love their kids and love their community group and love their friends. I watched Josh love people in our church as a pastor and love our community group. I watched the, the grace of God at work in their life. Fast forward a few years. 
Um, Melaine and I, my wife, she got pregnant uh, sometime last September, and in October one morning, um, about 4 a.m., she woke me up, and she'd had some excessive bleeding. And uh, in this moment, I was instantly convinced. I was 100% sure in my mind that uh, she had a miscarriage. And I was so sad. I can't tell, I don't know that was ever, I don't know that there's been a moment in my life I've ever been more sad than that moment right there. And so, um, so we get, okay, let's, let's go to the emergency room. We packed up some stuff and went to the emergency room. And um, as we're driving to the emergency room, I had this sentiment rise up and just say, just bitterness toward God. God, why? No. Start getting angry. See, I've got an anxiety and I'm not dealing with it well. And this is the moment. This is the moment that the devil's looking for going, I'm going to get him. I'm going to devour Kenny right here. Here's my moment. I'm lacking sober-mindedness in this moment. I'm lacking being watchful. And I'm allowing anger and bitterness toward God to well up in my heart as I drive to the emergency room. I'm getting angry. And the Holy Spirit prompted a memory of a conversation I had with Josh after they had their third miscarriage. And I start remembering how the grace of God had been at work in their life. And I thought to myself, the grace of God worked in their life. The grace of God will work in our life too. Praise be to God. And instantly, all that bitterness and anger that started to well up instantly fled. And I was sad. I was brokenhearted because I'm driving to the emergency room and I'm expecting them to tell us that yeah, your wife has had a miscarriage, and I'm sad. But all I can think about is the grace of God that was at work in the foster family, knowing that that same grace would be at work in our family. That's why we live in community. Great news is we got to the hospital and said, we actually don't know why there was excessive bleeding. There's actually nothing wrong. Your baby is perfectly fine. She's here today. Can't help but wonder if God ordained that and orchestrated that just for my own sanctification in some way or another. But this is why we live in community. This is why when people are like, nah, I don't want to be in a community group or I don't want to be in a life group. Whenever says that, someone says, nah, I don't need that, I think to myself, yeah, you do. You, you're opening the door to, to potential devouring. One of the ways you resist the devil is knowing about the suffering of your brotherhood, of your brothers and sisters in the faith, and watching the grace of God at work in their life up close and personal. That's how you resist the devil. When you become a member of City's Church or any gospel preaching church, you get the opportunity to submit to that church and that will guard you against the schemes of the enemy. Last thought for this morning, verse 10. Look there with me. Verse 10, Peter says this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, I love that descriptor of God, the God of all grace, I love that. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're going to suffer for a little while, but then the God of all grace, he's going to, he will intervene to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter uses this term, little while. He also used this term in the first chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and he actually uses it synonymously to be the time between now and the time Jesus comes back. In, in chapter 1, he says, until the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when he says, you're going to suffer for a little while, what he means is, you're going to suffer between now and the time Jesus comes back, or you die. That's it. That's the, that's little while is what Peter says there. 
That's an interesting phrase because I got to be honest, if you live 70 or 80 years in this life, that doesn't feel like a little while. It doesn't feel like a little while to me. But Peter would be, I think Peter would respond by saying, in compared to the glory that is to come, oh, it is a little while. In fact, the apostle Paul says this in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's not to say that we don't face real pain. We do. We face real pain and real suffering and real difficulties in this life. But when we compare them to the glory that is to come, there's no comparison. Suffer now. It's just a little while, Peter says. But after that little while, then he will come. He's going to come back. And that's when we will see his people restored and established. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no, <clears throat> and no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. There is no human eyeball or human ear has ever heard. There is no mind that can conceive of how glorious and good it will be when he comes back. When that future grace is revealed. So here's our exhortation this morning from the Apostle Peter. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Cast your anxieties on him. He cares for you. And do not allow your, your management and navigating of the anxieties of this world to open you up to potentially be in the crosshairs of the enemy. Humbly submit yourselves to one another and remember Jesus prayed for you. And in all of those things, we will resist the devil. Church, we will win our war against the devil and sin. Not because we muster up enough willpower on our own. No. We will win this war against sin and the devil because of Jesus. Because what he accomplished on our behalf. Because he prayed for us. Because he died for us. And he rose from the dead. We will win and we will see a future grace. And it's all because of Jesus. And that's why we come to this table every single week. We come to this table every week to remember Jesus, who he is and what he did for us. We partake in this meal to remember him, the son of God who prayed for me, who loved me, who died for me, who made it possible for us to be born again, born again unto a living hope. In just a moment, our pastors are going to come. <clears throat> We're going to pass out these elements, the, the juice and the bread. They are symbols for the blood and body of Christ. This meal is primarily for the members of City's Church, but it's open to anyone. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are welcome to participate in this meal. But if you are here this morning, you are not a follower of Jesus. You're not 100% sure that you have genuinely trusted in Christ and Christ alone. I would encourage you this morning, instead of taking communion with us, take Christ this morning instead. I encourage you, I implore you, trust in Christ. If you have any questions about what that means, feel free to come on up after the service and talk with us. We'd love to talk to you about that. Church, his body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.